Well, hello and good afternoon on this beautiful October day. Uh, just wanted again to start off by thanking you again, church, for your kindness and encouragement last week. Uh, Carissa and I and Joanna are truly so thankful for you. What a surprise. And so just to say it again, thank you so much. We love you so much. Uh, to start things off today, how many of you remember the game of Monopoly? Uh, you know the classic one, not the Pokemon one or Monopoly deal or any of the other fake variants. Uh, the classic one where words like chance or community chest ring a bell. Uh, but regardless, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Monopoly is a classic board game that essentially takes way too long and isn't very fun. Uh, you buy, sell, and trade properties to try and make as much money as possible. Uh, but one thing about the game is you have to be careful because sometimes you end up being sent to jail. And with that, one of the most popular cards you can draw by chance is one known as the get-out-of-jail-free card. And this is essentially exactly what it sounds like, where normally you would have to pay a price to be released from jail. Instead, the debt is canceled, and you find yourself released for free. Now think with me for a moment. I'm sure most everybody in this room has varying ranges of financial debt. But what about spiritual debt? Moral debt? Think about it. What's your balance? How much do you owe? What's the path to freedom? Is there a path to freedom? But in addition to just being physically free, what's the price then also of a clean conscience, of being made totally guiltless? Because here's the thing, if you take that get out of jail free card analogy a little bit further, we have a problem. Because just because someone gets released, even for free, that does, does that make them truly free? I mean, unless their sentence is canceled, or reversed, whether they're in prison or they're released, they're still guilty. They may be physically free, but they're still in spiritual bondage. Their consciences are still stained and tainted. So the question at this point then is, how is it that one can be made both physically and spiritually free? where there's no debt, and when the conscience is made perfectly clean. Again, what is the path to such a freedom? I'd love it if you could go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. We'll need our Bibles a lot this, morning, or this afternoon. We'll be going through it uh, quite a bit. We're going to be in chapter 8 today of the Gospel of John, so Matthew Starting the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, the fourth book in the New Testament, chapter 8, verses 21 through 30. And as you turn there, let me just recap the context of where we find ourselves in John's gospel today. So what we're doing is we're dropping in to the middle of a, a conversation between Jesus and the Jewish religious authorities and as Pastor James explained last week, this is in the midst of, of a crowd as he taught at the temple courts in the days immediately following an important Jewish feast, which celebrated God's faithfulness to his people. 
So with this Jewish feast in the backdrop, things are getting pretty heated. And as far as they're concerned, a blasphemer is gaining a significant platform. And he needs to be shut down. It's like if somebody showed up here today and was out in the lobby just spewing a bunch of falsehoods, right? At least in their viewpoint. And yet Jesus, in the face of such opposition, remained composed, unfazed, and uncompromising. And as a result, the hearts, minds, and spiritual states of those in attendance are slowly being parted and split, almost like the Red Sea with Moses, with Jesus standing there in the center. So he's the truth in the midst of lies and corruption. Or as he says earlier in this chapter, he's the light in the midst of darkness. And in this passage, the two biggest items in question are Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission. So as we navigate through this text today, please be sure to keep those two things at the front of your mind. What is Jesus' identity and what is Jesus' mission? So let's go ahead and read it together. The Gospel of John, verses 21 through 30. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Or better yet, it could be, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, church, I've got two points for you today, and what I want you to do is think of these two points as essentially like two instructions manuals, uh, two different how-to guides that we're going to take a look at, all right? So number one, our first how-to guide is how to die. That's verses 21 through 27 of chapter 8, how to die. For those taking notes, I want you to write die as like a capital D-I-E, right? And the reason being is we're not just talking about death as like going to sleep or resting in peace, something like that. No, this has much more weight and bite to it, okay? So number one, how to die. And number two, our second how-to guide, how to live. That's verses 28 through 30, how to live. Same thing, all caps. 
Now, if you recall John's purpose statement for this book found in chapter 20, he essentially says that Jesus did so many other things than what we found in this particular book, but that he's written these, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, identity, and that by believing you may have life in his name, mission. And John writes something similar in the next chapter, chapter 21, the last verse of the book. He writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And both of these texts are important to keep in mind because, again, it gives us particular insight into why John writes, what he writes, when he writes it. It's so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So yes, here's how to die, but more importantly, the heart of John's gospel, the heart of John's heart, is here's how to live. But first, number one, how to die. If you want to put two themes there, subpoints, as you might think, or just two steps to death, think of it as reject Jesus' identity and reject Jesus' mission. It's as simple as that. These are the steps we see in verses 21 through 27. So look at verse 21 with me. It says, So he said to them, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the again here uh, that Jesus says in verse 21 is actually referencing back to John chapter 7. All right, we got to a, a couple of weeks ago. You can flip back there with me actually right now if you like. John chapter 7 verses 32 through 36. I'm just going to go ahead and read that as well. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So again, this is now the second time Jesus has shared this information with them. And both times it's not understood. But Jesus adds a little something here in chapter 8. He tells them he's going away, but he also says, you'll seek me, you won't find me, and you'll die in your sin. So the seeking and finding here, I think, is talking about like in the physical sense, so rather than the spiritual sense. I think what he means by this is essentially, he's saying, you'll try to find my body, but it will be gone. Uh, You won't find it in that grave, Uh, basically foreshadowing the resurrection. And I mean this in contrast to the idea that some, some commentators say, you know, you'll seek me spiritually at a later point in time, but will be unable to find me. But then he says again, and you will die in your sin. Now think about it. Think about the conversation that happened previously in verses 11 through 20 of chapter 8, where Jesus tells the same group that he is the light of the world. Remember from last week? Look at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is telling them 
Listen up. This whole world is in darkness. You're all sitting under a black cloud of judgment for the sins that you've committed. And you don't even know what's coming. All of you always want to know what's going on. You always say you want clarity. You always want the inside scoop. You always want to flaunt your knowledge. Well, listen up. The light of the world is here, right in front of you. Do you see it? Do you see me? Don't turn away, no matter how much I may expose you for the frauds that you really are. Turn to me. Don't run from me. Don't exchange the light of the world for eternal darkness. Because if you do that, if you continue doing what you're doing, you will die in your sin. Notice here, he doesn't say sins, plural. He says you will die in your sin. And friends, this is our natural state. We will die in our natural state apart from God. Right, you see, we're not like seesaws, right, that start in a neutral place each day. You know, sin, righteousness, sin, righteousness. No, friends, that seesaw is chained to the ground on one side. And that side is the side of sin. And Jesus is saying, this is where you are, and this is where you'll stay left to yourselves. You will not come with me. You cannot come with me. So anyone who says, oh yeah, I just assume I'm going to heaven after I die, just as a side note, if somebody says they believe in an afterlife or they believe in heaven, that they're going to heaven after they die, and have absolutely no grounds for believing that, one, somebody has to create that place, and somebody has to sustain that place. So just go ahead and ask them who they think does that. Uh, But coming back now, you ever find yourself in darkness just kind of fumbling around because you can't find the light. Maybe at night when you're going to bed or when you're camping, something like that. Friends, this will be us for eternity under the judgment of God unless we open our hearts and listen to Jesus. In verse 22, we read, So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. So again, this is the second time, again, that Jesus used these words with them. And what's going on here are the Jews, they're asking this question uh, because the Jews actually believed that the worst sin anyone could ever commit was suicide. And that that basically only the lowest parts of their understanding of hell were reserved for those who committed such an act. Uh, One well-known pastor makes the observation of how totally backwards these people are. Their response actually exposes how totally inverted their spiritual condition is. Here, they think they're the authority talking to a crazy heretic who's headed to the lowest parts of hell, when in reality, they're talking to, as Bernadette read earlier, the great God, the great king above all gods who holds the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, and all of creation together, who is eternally bound for the throne, the right hand of the Father. They're totally ignorant to Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission, and as a result are destined for death. And this is exactly what Jesus points out in verse 23, when he says, you are from 
below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Again, Jesus returns to his identity, and he's pointing out the distance between their understanding and what's actually reality. The distance between their truth and what's actually true. He's utterly exposing them. I can't think of uh, how, how the prophet Isaiah put it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. These people reject Jesus' identity and his mission because they are so ingrained in their sin, they can't see it. They have like clay and mud on their eyes. Their spiritual sight is as impaired as it gets. They're so ingrained in worldliness. And church, I love you dearly. So on this point, if I may, something near and dear to my heart, I am so sick and tired of the Christian church often looking eerily similar or sometimes even the exact same as the world around us. There's absolutely nothing impressive about that, to be clear. I did a little research on basically what the world loves most. Another way of saying it would be the marks of this present world between its buying habits, its values, its priorities. And you know what I found to be the, the, the f- top five markers of the world, the top five things the world loves, the top five things, markers of worldliness? Number one, security. Or you could say safety or predictability. So we definitely see this play itself out in the total and utter idolization of finances, for example. You know, I was talking with one brother this past weekend in our church uh, recently. We were, dis- we were discussing how at the end of the day, you know, it's absolutely remarkable what people will say, what people will do or believe or promote, so long as it impacts their bottom line and inflates their bank accounts. You can get the people of this world to say just about anything which we wonder why Jesus spoke so much against greed in his ministry. It's because this world is so disgustingly greedy and corrupt. And so financial security, for sure, absolutely. But what we've also seen so clearly, and I'll step on some toes here, over the past year and a half is physical security as well. In the age of coronavirus, we've become so insulated, so isolated, so obsessed with presenting, preserving our own lives in our own health, even public health for that matter, that essentially to ever suggest that, you know, we may not actually be entitled to a good health and a long life is now the highest degree of blasphemy one could ever consider. Friends, let me share something with you. We are not entitled to good health. We are not entitled to certain degrees of wealth where we get to eat at all of our favorite restaurants and wear all of our favorite brands and find ourselves discontent if we don't get to live the lifestyle we really want to. You know, we bag so much on the prosperity gospel theologically, but how many of us here today actually deep down really believe it or desire it consciously 
subconsciously, whatever it may be. How tragic that so many Christian churches and so many Christian church members have bought into the lie that we are entitled to good health and wealth. To the point where we question, even curse God, throw fits like toddlers, clay pots interrogating the potter when we don't get what we want. The second thing I found, number one, security. The second thing I found was comfort. Now this is very similar to security, but it differs in, in, in my view in the sense that I think of security as a more long-term kind of steady state you know, type of thing. And I think of comfort as more of a day-to-day priority in our lives. Right? The softest clothing, the most spacious house, the most comfortable car, the most time for ourselves to make ourselves more and more comfortable. Whatever it takes for us to be able to indulge a little, to be waited on, to, to do things on our terms. Number three, and just a reminder, these aren't subpoints or anything, just a top five. Number three, marker of worldliness in the year 2021, entertainment. We want whatever we find appealing, whatever can hold our attentions, honestly, whatever just keeps us thinking and dwelling and meditating on the deeper things in life. How much can we really suck out of Netflix and our streaming services? Number four, convenience. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. We're unwilling to wait. Whatever it takes to have things our way on our timing. And finally, number five, appearance. What looks the nicest? What impresses the world? What feeds our carnal appetites to compete with others and capture the attention of the world around us? Church, you know what? Absolutely none of these sound anything like whatsoever. Any ideas? Here's a few. Christianity. The New Testament church. The ministry of the apostles. Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows himself. And you know, sure, I'll qualify it a little bit for you. Most of these things, I admit, they're not evil in and of themselves. So having a comfortable mattress is not sinful. And we shouldn't seek to suffer to somehow be made more holy and pure. That's called aestheticism. The Bible tells us that we should stay clear of that. But at the same time, don't be too comforted. I'm not going to give you that out, okay? They're not, well, you know, like, well, they're not that bad, but I don't really need to change my heart and mind at all. You know what the saddest part about all of this is? Is that for so many of us, so many churches today, these markers of worldliness is exactly what we find ourselves promoting and living out in our gatherings and values. I saw a church planting video recently on Instagram for a new church in the DMV area. And sure enough, you want to know what the emphasis was? What stood out in that promo video? Production, appearance, financial blessing, belonging, convenience by way of online accessibility. Absolutely nothing about the gospel and one quick reference to God 
and or Jesus. They didn't say anything about God. They, they said one reference to Jesus at the very end where they say something like, we want to live in the way of Jesus. That's it. May it not be said of us, New Covenant Baptist Church. As I've heard it said several times, what you draw people with is what you ultimately draw people to. It's as John Piper puts it. What this does is it offers to people what they already want as natural people. You don't have to be born again to want these things. You don't have to be converted. Church, there's absolutely nothing countercultural about these things. Security, comfort, entertainment, convenience, appearance. Go ahead, throw power, self-righteousness, acceptance, popularity in there. There's nothing impressive here. Right? Friends, in Christianity without Christ is totally not worth it. It's, not, it, it's empty. It's exhausting, and it's a waste of your time and mine. And I want none of that for you, and I want none of that for me. May we look more to Christ in the truth of his word, in the truth of the gospel, and to the life everlasting than we look to the world around us. Amen? You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And then in verse 24, Jesus repeats himself. He brings it back to the main point. He's being as blunt as he possibly can with unbelievers. And he says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, he, you will die in your sins. You want to know the instruction manual for how to die? Reject Jesus. Don't believe in him. Live carnally. Go through the motions and play this church thing. You know what's remarkable about this verse is in really this entire passage, and John does it a lot in his gospel, the he here, unless you believe that I am he, that he is actually added by translators to try and help us understand it a little bit better. Uh, But if you read it as it is, Jesus, what he's actually saying, he says, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It's amazing. None of these are considered part of the the seven I am sayings in the book of John. Uh, But John does this all the time. He's making the point painstakingly clear that Jesus is God. And if you reject that, you will die. That's a message straight to, to Mormons, to Jehovah's Witnesses, to Muslims who all think we're we're playing on the same team. Notice here also it says sins. It's plural. Whereas in verse 21, he says, sin, singular. I think what we're to take from this is a type of double guilty verdict on us. Right? We are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by experience. All we've ever known is sin. All we've ever done left to ourselves is sin. We break God's law. We choose our way over his. We rebel. We try to hijack his throne And going back to that seesaw illustration, this is like adding a thousand more of those heaviest chains to the end that is stuck to the ground, and we are bound to die there. And how do the Jews respond to Jesus then? Look at verse 25. They said to him, who are you? Or like I said, could be who are you? 
The first gives them the benefit of the doubt in seeking. The, the second is a more consistent with their accusing attitude towards him. They either still don't know at best, or once again, they're immediately rejecting Jesus' identity and mission at worst. And you know what they're going to get? Death. Eternal death and destruction. And Jesus says, I am exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning. He continues in verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to, to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to you the, wor- the world, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And then in, in 27 he says, They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So what Jesus is saying here is that his identity and his mission are on the Father's authority. He's not making something up. That there's so many other things Jesus could say, maybe wanted to say, that he could judge them for, but he's sticking to the task the Father has given him. He's saying, you all say you want truth. Well, here it is from the Father you all also say you claim to know. And for those of us here today, reading his words, hearing the exact same words, it's no different. We all say we want truth. Here it is. Jesus is God. And if we do not believe in him, we will die in our sin, and we will die in our sins. This is the way of death. This is the how-to guide to death. You want to die eternally? Reject who Jesus is and reject what he came to do. It's as simple as that. And my prayer, everyone here, is that you will take this instruction manual, tear it up, and burn it forever. Right? That you will play with it no longer. That you would replace it with the way of life. Well, get out of jail free If only there was a way. And friends, I have genuinely the best news in the world for you. The best news is that there is a way. And that brings us to point number two. Our second how-to guide is how to live. That's verses 28 through 30. How to live. Starting in verse 28... We read, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Praise God. You want to know how to not only not die, but to truly live. Look at what Jesus says. Even go back, look at verse 21. He said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So right there in verse 21, things are looking pretty bleak, right? This is kind of like in an emergency room setting when the doctor comes out and says, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. But then again, Look at verse 24, we get a glimmer of hope. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. And what's there? It says, 
For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Friends, this is what we call hope. Remember when I said the hearts, minds, and spiritual states of those present for Jesus' teaching were parting? You had the ones who still don't get it, or better yet, the ones who still won't get it. And that's what we've been looking at thus far. But look at verse 30 here. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Uh, These people have just found the key to life. The key to truly living. You see, they're simply taking Jesus at his word for who he is and what he came to do. His identity and his mission. To the point that where he is headed, there also shall they be. To the point where they're not just, you know, figuring out how to not die. They're not just escaping death. No, they're entering life eternally. And not simply at the end of this one, you know, that they or we are currently living, but rather from the moment they believe, from the moment we believed. New birth, new life in joyful, self-forgetful submission to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, don't forget your first love in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the perfect display of fullness, of truth, and love who gave his life for you and is presently just awaiting your homecoming. How? Verse 28. Verse 28, as we just read, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Or then you will know that I am when you lift me up on this cross. The cross is the game changer. The difference maker. The cross is the key that unlocks the chains that hold you and I in our sinful states. It's the transaction that takes that heavy burden that has been on your back. And I know there are some here today that are carrying that heavy burden that has been haunting you. And it casts it into the bottom of the ocean. It's the get-out-of-jail-free card that not only releases you physically, but declares you guiltless, that totally and utterly cleans and washes your consciences of who you've been and what you've done. Because you know what? It's actually not free at all. A tremendous price had to be paid. The greatest price that could ever be paid was paid for you. You see, God is perfectly holy And righteous. And because he is righteous, he will not turn a blind eye to evil. He promises by his own name that he will judge everything. And that is great news. And you know what? That includes you, it includes me, and includes everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everyone in this entire world, it includes everyone who's ever lived and everyone who ever will live. And so as a result, Friends, a payment for that sin must be made. And that payment is your life. Eternally. And there will come a time when that payment will come due for all of us. Except for those who have already had that payment made on their behalf. Amen? Except for those who recognize and believe who Jesus is and what he came to do. Which, don't tune out on me here, was to become a man himself himself dwell among us, 
to be the living image of the living and invisible God and live the perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father so that he could die as the perfect sacrifice that would be accepted by God the Father. And I say sacrifice because that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it was. It was the giving up of himself for the sake of others, for the sake of you. And then rising again to defeat death once and for all for those who what? Forsake their ways. Repent of their sin. Turn from them. And believe in him as the once for all sacrifice on their behalf. On your behalf. Canceling your sin. Canceling your debt. Friends, you ever find yourself in an an unfortunate or uh, uh, regretful situation? Uh, You do anything just about anything to rewind it back. I do this all the time. Uh, maybe I'm just weird and mental like that. But even, even uh, a few years ago, I made a careless decision with my car. And uh, the next thing I knew, the whole left side was smashed in. And I was just like, man, if I could just have those 30 seconds back. Because now I've got to go through everything to, to get it repaired, call the insurance company, you know, work everything out. Same, similar to losing your wallet or your purse. And then having to go through all the trouble to cancel and replace everything. If I, if I had just picked it up on my way out the door. Or maybe even something weightier, like an injury. Or, or damaging a relationship. If I could just have that back. Friends, when the time comes and your life is required of you, don't be there wishing you just did things differently. Don't be there wishing, if I could just have it back. If only I didn't put so much hope and weight and emphasis on the things of the world. If only I didn't care so much about what other people thought. If only I didn't worship my safety, my comfort, my convenience, my entertainment. If only I surrendered myself and listened to Jesus. You know, on this idea of escaping Death, anyone here ever been to or heard of an escape room? Right? It's essentially like a team building activity where people are locked into a room and people pay for that. I know it's weird. Um, and have to, they, they have to solve a series of puzzles and mysteries in a set amount of time in order to unlock the room and escape. Uh, I thought it was really dumb until I actually did it. So if you haven't done it, you should try it. Uh, but the thing with escape rooms is that there's only one way out. There's only one way of escape. And that's if you get things right. You have to solve it. There's only one way out. You've got to get it right. And you know, it's one thing to escape a room. And it's a whole other thing to escape death. And would we not do well to listen and submit ourselves to the only one who not only escaped death, but defeated it forever. Brothers and sisters, we've taken a close look at our Lord Jesus Christ in this text. And as you see, like I've said, the spiritual state of this crowd slowly splitting, there's no hiding anymore. Which one will it be? Which how-to guide is going to run your life? The way of death or the way of life. For the non-Christian here today, will you turn your back on the light of the world and venture off into the depths of darkness forever? 
You know, you might say, I'm just not ready yet. I'm still young. I need to experience life a little bit. Let me just have my fun. And uh, maybe then later on in life, especially if I, if, you know, if I luck out and, you know, I get a warning that, you know, I might be sick or something and I might, then I can make a, a, an informed decision at that point in time. I'll tell you what, if you walk out of this room knowing you're in, you, you're, you don't believe in Christ, you are walking away from the light of the world even today. All right? And who knows, you may be afforded that opportunity later on. That would be by God's grace, but don't count on it. Repent of your sin today and trust in him. To the Christian, you know, I think it's the same thing. Very similar. It's one thing to believe, and it's another thing to keep believing. It's what we call perseverance of the saints. What are you currently holding on to that you've been resistant to give up? Think about it. What are you dabbling in that you have no business doing so? What kind of doubts are you letting fester, are you giving life to, rather than seeking to actually deal with them? And which elements of worldliness do you keep making excuses for? In closing, Jesus said later on, which we'll get to in a few weeks, a few months, he says in John 11, you don't need to turn there, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives, believes in me, shall never die. And then Jesus closes his thought off by saying, do you believe this? Friends, members, visitors, do you believe this?